Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We'll open your Bibles to Acts 7. We'll read it and then we will go elsewhere. But in Acts 7 has been our passage. We've been working through a basic theology of martyrdom. And the reason for it is found in our passage. I'll start reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen has been accused falsely of many things, none of them true, and yet the Jews and the Jewish leadership are furious, and he now speaks to them very pointedly and bluntly, and he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, rather, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So we continue with this study of Stephen because he is the very first martyr of the church. I've already pointed out many aspects of this passage because it's so rich with many points that we need to understand. We have seen how quickly the infant church goes from having great favor with the people to murderous rage. We saw the rejection of the church had, we saw that the rejection of the church had nothing to do with the people themselves though, but it was with their message. As long as the church is not focused on calling people to repent from sin and to turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness of sin, the church will always be welcome. But the moment the church maintains a faithfulness to what they are called to be and do, the reality is oppression and resistance will be the norm. We saw that Stephen was a man who knew the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. And all of those years of his youth spent learning the word of God so that now he became a wellspring of knowledge that he could preach so powerfully to these men. We saw how the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin, how it brings forth one of two reactions either repentance or rejection. We saw the way the Holy Spirit empowers a person to be able to withstand even the reality of a violent death. We saw the way God gives sustaining and encouraging grace to Stephen so that he would be able to see Christ standing at the right hand of the Father even before he died. And we saw how the Holy Spirit worked in the heart of Stephen so that as the stones would rain down upon his body, he would then still ask God to forgive his attackers. All of this, a work of the Spirit in this man's life. What you actually have here is simply Christianity on display. 
When you make Christianity merely a set of propositions, facts, you miss the whole point. It's not merely facts, it's, it's actually life itself. And I think that many who would call themselves a Christian, in fact, fail at this very point, that there is no way that they can describe why Christ in Christianity is life. I've had many a conversation, countless, in fact, over the years, where I would simply ask a person who I have every reason to question their faith, and they'll say, well, I trust in Jesus. And I'll say, okay, and what do you mean? Well, I, I believe that he died for my sins. He rose again. And that's, that's fine, and that's true. It's good. That's the propositions. That's the fact. He did die for my sin. He did rise again. Okay, so what? And then I'll ask a question along these lines. Explain to me how he is your hope. Tell me how he is your hope. And it is there so often that I will witness the person stumbling. Let me ask you, how is Jesus Christ your hope? How is the Christian faith life? Not merely facts that you've accepted. That will put you in hell. How is Christ your life? You heard that actually from John Lachlan. One of my favorite passages, Colossians chapter 3. Christ, who is our life. Life is Christ, and Christ is life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you have no genuine life. And if you have genuine life, it's only because you have Christ. They are inseparable. It is life, and it's the reality of people who are made alive through the saving work of God. And it's all centered upon those facts but those facts are actually historical reality upon which you live, you hope, you breathe, you function. So it's not just a story. It's the reality of the problem with each of us and with this whole world. The problem of sin, our, our rebellion against our creator. We fight, we resist, rationalize, hate, fear, despise with the greatest of ease. Our souls are never satisfied with anything for very long. Our hearts are full of envy, while our minds are easily drugged into complacency and boredom, making for a very vicious combination. And yet Christianity also is the truth that God does not leave us in that impossible reality. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he demands eternal judgment against all who have sinned against him, all who rebel against him, all who give him no thought. But he is also then the one who took on human flesh as Jesus and became our great substitute. Jesus, the Son of God, God made flesh in perfect obedience, dying in our place as our sacrifice and our substitute. Our sin placed on him, and he dies in our place, and the Father's wrath is poured out upon him rather than us. But Jesus' death is still not all that happens, for we all face death. But both physical and spiritual death is our end if Christ did not die and rise again. Sin brings not just physical death, but that spiritual separation for all eternity under the wrath of God known as hell. And so Christ not only died, but the scripture makes it clear that he rose again as he promised on the third day, defeating not just sin, but also the power of sin, which is death, just as he promised. And so he, forgive, he secures our forgiveness as well as life. And that's a good word to us who believe. We're called to believe it. We're called to cling to it. We're, in fact, called to conform our lives around it. But all of this is also a wonderful work of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit who gives those who believe a whole different understanding and outlook on life as they trust in Christ. And the reason is that they're fundamentally changed. This is what makes you as a Christian so different. 
And this is why it's not hard if you really understand the Christian faith to see a Christian, to know a Christian. There's just some fundamental differences. You're changed. You're changed by the Spirit. And now you have this whole new life, a new spirit that gives a new outlook with a new passion, a new hope. One that can even forgive those who are attacking you and seeking your life. The Christian faith then is the ultimate in both optimism and pessimism. Because it recognizes that this age is passing away. That's very pessimistic. It's going to get worse. All that the whole of humanity has ever known or experienced in this age is but a fleeting shadow or a mist soon to be gone. But the Christian faith recognizes that this age is under the dominion of sin and death. That's pessimistic. But also that Jesus has overcome this age. That's optimistic. The Christian faith recognizes that God has promised that he will bring forth a new heavens and earth where sin and death no longer has a place. It's not even present to be found. That's optimistic. And all who trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross shall enjoy that for eternity. So all of that brings great optimism because only God can destroy the soul. Nothing else on this, in this creation, seen or unseen, spiritual or physical, can destroy your soul except God. And the Christian soul is safe in Christ. And because God cannot lie or deny himself, we have that ultimate hope that he will keep us or keep his word and bring us home safely. But part of what he promised is that persecution and even martyrdom is part of following Jesus. And that's pessimistic. But not in an evil or negative or unbelieving way, but it's still pessimistic. Who wants to be told, through many tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God? We all want the kingdom of God. We want eternity with Christ. We want life eternal. But the pathway, not so much. And so we have been spending our time thinking through what it means to understand martyrdom. What is martyrdom? A theology of martyrdom. And today we'll consider the third principle. We, we touched on two. We, we learned the first principle is that we are not supposed to be surprised by it. We are to expect it. No Christian should ever be shocked when they suffer persecution or martyrdom. And second, we are not to fret over the possibility of it, but rather simply be faithful in our conduct before God. So don't be shocked and be faithful. Two principles. Third principle is for today. The third principle is persecution is a tool of Satan and not just of flesh and blood. Persecution is a tool of Satan and not just or merely of flesh and blood. Go with me to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, Chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, in this section of Revelation, the Apostle John is writing a series of visions that are messages given to various historical churches of his time. This one is given to the church in the city of Smyrna. If you want to learn more about this, you can find my sermons on the book of Revelation uh, on our site or sermon audio. Notice, though, in verse 10, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's speaking this to that church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's, that's my second point, right? Don't fret over this. Don't get caught up in this. Don't say, oh. But he's telling them what's coming. But he's also saying, don't be afraid. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful. That's my second point again, right? Don't fret. Don't be shocked. 
but be faithful. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The structure of this passage in verses 8 through 10 is really a series of contrasts. Notice in verse 9, or uh, verse 8, he says, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So you're poor, but you're rich. Those who claim to be Jews, but are not Jews. He says, the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. And then he says, be faithful to death and you'll have life. Just a series of contrasts all the way through. Notice in this, he also describes a variety of suffering and persecution. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested. There are physical hardships that they are going to suffer, which are built into that term tribulation in verse 9. In other words, he says, life is going to be hard. Some of you are here because you think, I want to get my life together. I want things to get better. And I can only tell you that the reality of following Christ does not mean things necessarily get better in your life, but in fact, oftentimes they become hard. If you if you see that Christ is here merely to fulfill your personal wants and needs, and you've already failed at the most basic level, because it's still you that's the point. Would you come to Christ, and would you follow Christ if he says, tribulation will be your life? Life is going to be hard, but it's not due to the bad choices that the church at Smyrna has have, have made. It's not because they've chosen a foolish way. The reason life is going to be hard and full of tribulations is because they're Christians. Notice that there are financial hardships. He says, I know your poverty. Christ is intimately aware of the fact that they are poor. Now, what's interesting about that term, though, is that there's two terms in the Greek New Testament, which is what the New Testament is primarily written in, that talk about poverty. There's one that speaks of a person who has nothing superfluous, meaning you have nothing left, nothing extra. In other words, at the end of the month, you're done. You have nothing. You're, you're down into the pennies, maybe a couple of bucks in your bank account. You don't have next month's rent right now. You're working month to month, week to week, and every week each paycheck gets spent to its fullest, and, and you got nothing extra. You all probably are aware of that at some point maybe in your own life. And that is what an American would call poor or poverty. But the one that is used here by John is one that speaks of a person who has nothing at all. This is what is meant by most of the world when they mean poverty. It's not what Americans think, but it's what the rest of the world call poor. It would not be uncommon for them to endure because they are Christian. Get this, hear this. Because they are in Christian, are Christians, it would not be uncommon for them to endure unfair and even illegal seizures of their money and their property simply because they're a Christian. They would have these things seized from them because they have been pushed to the edges of society. They are on the outskirts. They're the ones that you walk by and sneer at not because of life choices, not because they're fools, but because they're Christians. In that day, they would have been excluded from all of the trade guilds. We would call them unions today, but the trade guilds. And because they were excluded, they would be forbidden from making a living. living. Imagine that. Imagine that you're a man and you have skills. 
Your dad and your granddad taught you these skills. You were raised around them, whether it be making pottery or, or carpentry or stonemasonry. Uh, it might be coppersmith. It might be anything and everything. You might be gifted with handwriting and, and spelling, and, uh, and so you were one of the guys that would sit down in the marketplace to pen the letters that people would come because they couldn't write. It didn't matter. You had a marketable skill. You were good at this. And you had the ability to do it, and you were willing to do it, but you were prevented from doing it. You were not allowed to do it. It's not like you could create a black market, work behind the scenes and say, well, I'll just do this, and people won't know about it, but I, you know, I'll be that go-to guy if people want to save some money. No, you are forbidden. Imagine that. Imagine the frustration that you had because you're not allowed to make an honest living. When you're this poor, it's not merely enduring hardships. It's not going without. We, we may know what that looks like, and you might say, oh, yeah, I know what that looks like. That's not this poverty, beloved. This is abject poverty of the deepest sort. It's, it's not the lack of basics. It's the lack of ability to improve yourself. It's not that you don't just have it. It means that you can't get it. There's no ability to get it. You don't just, okay, if I gain this skill or if I do this or if I do that, I can improve myself. I'm just going to have to maybe go without sleep for maybe a couple months and, and it's going to be hard and I'm going to be exhausted, but I can, I can climb my way out of this problem. No, you don't have the ability. Here's an example. In Ethiopia, I was being served uh, my breakfast at the hotel, and uh, Matt and I were, Matt Miller and I, we were talking about how slow it was. It's like, you know, we're, it's not like we're the only, we're the, literally the only ones here, and apparently they have to go find a chicken, and then find one that laid an egg, and then find another one that laid an egg, and this might be a couple miles away, apparently, and then they bring it back, and then they eventually get you your omelet. It's like, how long does it take to make an omelet? My goodness. And we, it, literally, it took like almost 40 minutes for us to get an omelet. And we were joking about it, and then we were talking about it to our translator. And uh, I said, I, somehow the conversation switched, and I said, you know, that guy over there works hard, and he was doing some horrible job on the street. It was just scrambling around in the dirt doing something. can't remember what it was. It was not good, though. And I said, now that's a guy that could probably make a quick omelet. And he said, oh, he could not work at the hotel. I said, why not? He's like, well, he's from this tribe. I said, so? And he's like, he would never be allowed to work. And he said, besides, he has no certificate. I said, what's the certificate? He's like, his, his tribe, they're too poor and they can't have, go to, their family can't pay for them to have the school. And because they don't have the school, they don't have the certificate. Because they don't have the certificate, then they're not allowed to work. I said, well, what if I help that family just out of curiosity? I said, if I was to give the family the money so that they could send their kids to school, he said, oh, they'd be prevented from it because they're the wrong tribe. I said, so they're just trapped. He's like, yes. And, and it wasn't yes. It's yes. That's just the way it works here in Ethiopia. And, there, and the, it, life is just hard. Now push yourself even beyond that, and that's what he's talking about here in this passage. Perhaps you think, I could do this. I could endure it. Well, imagine that you're holding, though, your precious child who's lying near death because you don't have enough food. You're looking at your beloved wife who is wasting away before your very eyes, not because you don't have the ability to get food in your skill set, but that you're not allowed to get food. Your home now is no longer a home, but it's a back alleyway or underneath a bridge, and you're just surviving however you can survive. And all you have to do is deny Christ, and everything's forgiven. That's all you got to do. Deny Him. You can come to work. 
You can feed your wife, your little one. You can have your home back. Just deny them. Which way are you going to go? See, it's easy sitting in here with air conditioning working and a padded seat for us to talk all day long about what we would do. But this is your reality, beloved, if the Lord wills. Another form of persecution found here is blasphemous slander. This is evil speech that's being directed to these Christians by unbelieving Jews. They were Jews in their heritage, but not in their faith. They had Their Messiah had come, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and they had rejected him and even nailed him to the cross, like Stephen said. These were the same kind of Jews that Stephen ran into in our passage in Acts 7. They were religious, they were knowledgeable, but they were enemies of Jesus Christ. And now 50 years later, when this is written, they're still nailing Jesus Christ to the cross by killing and hurting his people here in Smyrna. So they're described as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. Remember that Satan literally means adversary. Satan is not his name. In fact, nowhere does the Bible give his name. He's the devil. He's the adversary. He's the Lord of the flies. He's called all kinds of things, but he'll never be given his name. In fact, the Bible won't give his name because that would be a a mark of respect. He's only described by being what he is. He is the adversary. And that is the idea of this opposition of the people, that they are being stirred up by Satan to oppose and to slander the men and women of God. These are men and women who lived out the lifestyle of their father, the devil. Just as Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day when he looked at them in John 8 and he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Why? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. And everyone who lies is partaken of that same nature. And so these blasphemies against these Christians are just expressing their love for this world and the father of this age, Satan himself. Understand, though, that in that day that the Christians were lumped in with the Jews, and the Jews were already disliked by a lot of people, and so they didn't need the extra hassle of having the Christians there. So the Jews, it's this weird thing. The Jews are hated by everybody, and finally they got somebody they get to hate. And so they turn that frustration onto the Christian and make certain that they give them all of that themselves. So not only are the Gentile, the non-Jew people afflicting the Christians, but the Jews are as well. We see the similar things occur today in the visible church, even in America, as it's actively trying to distance itself from biblical Christianity. You watch it on the internet. There's this fleeing from a biblical Christianity to a new form of Christianity. And I think that what you will see more and more is overt oppression upon conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches by those who call themselves Christian. What is key to note is that this is an event that's being instigated, he says. Notice in verse 10, the devil is doing this. This strips back the physical curtain of what we see. We see our enemies as these people and those people. No, he's like, no, it's Satan. It's just Satan. Some of these dear believers are going to be thrown into prison, which is likely just designed to add salt to the wound. To make those who aren't thrown into prison be all the more afraid. Imagine if you were afraid as a man, especially in that culture where the men are about the only way you're going to get any food anyhow, and they're, they're under the bridge and they're scrambling around for any scrap that they can give to their beloved wife and children. And now the threat is that we will imprison all of the men of your church. Can you imagine how the men are going to be like, oh, I, I got a family to take care of? Just deny Christ. 
But notice also, he is in no way in this passage telling them, figure out a way out of this. All he's telling them to do is endure. Now, it's not wrong to seek relief, but it's also important for you to understand that genuine trials often have little or no escape built into them because they're God caused by God. They're not your stupidity. That's just punishment or discipline. A trial is something God brings into your life where you have no escape. You just have to endure it and work through it and come out the other end as God wills. Trials are not the same as consequences, in other words, though the consequence can morph into a trial. In fact, oftentimes, the only escape from a genuine trial is a sinful choice. And might I say to you that one of the discouraging parts of pastoral work is the amount of times you spend talking to people in a trial and you're pushing them to go a certain way because they're tempted to sin just to get relief and you're telling them no, no, no. And you watch them say, no, I'm going to go this. God loves me. God, God's forgiving God. God wants me happy. God doesn't this. God doesn't that. And the, and the rationale starts flowing. And the sin is cho- chosen just to get the relief. And I, I, again, maybe this is, I don't know if it's wise to share or not, but in my mind, I look at a person when they make that choice, and I'm like, what makes you think you're going to endure when it really matters? Why would, why would you think that you're going to endure when you can't even endure this minor trial without choosing a way out? Beloved, these people in Smyrna are not going to escape it because God has said it's part of his will that they suffer. And so he tells them, be faithful. How long? Well, he says, until death. Right there at the end of verse 10. Be faithful until death. He says, and on the other side of it would be life. That's why he says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And that's all that Satan will ever do to you. He can hurt you. He can kill you. But he has no power over life itself. God is the giver and the sustainer of all life. And he says, I will raise you and bring you into eternal life. And so what I'm trying to say in this, and I'm already aware that I don't think I'll get through all of this, so I'll be doing some skipping in my notes, is we have to learn to see that when we suffer for the gospel in the name of Jesus, it's not merely because of evil people, it's Satan at work. He's the one who is in opposition of all things. The whole of the Christian faith is based off of truth, and Satan is the father of lies, so he will always oppose it. He stands against truth. And so when you talk to friends, and as you conform yourself into the likeness of Jesus, and your lives begin to change, truth ends up being proclaimed, and Satan is stirred up to hatred. But notice also how Jesus comes into this whole picture in verse 8. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, he says this. So Jesus describes himself in a certain way to the church before he tells them the hard words. Now, why is he doing that? Because, because it is facing, the church is facing persecution to the point of even death, and they need to know that death is not the victor. He overcame death in his own resurrection, and therefore there is no fear of a second death. There's no fear of hell. There's no fear of the wrath of God. But also the power and the authority of Jesus in this almost casual description that he has of their suffering. He just casually says that though Satan is working evil, he's just a tool for God's purposes. You say, but Satan's doing this. And Jesus would say, yep. Why? Because I want him to. Okay. Can you have him not? 
No. Satan cannot go beyond what he is allowed. He's limited here that they will be put into prison for 10 days. He's, he's got his limitations. He'll never harm you beyond what is allowed. And that still might be frightening for you, but for the true Christian, it's a good word, especially when you're in the middle of it. Go over to Luke 21. We'll briefly go there. Luke 21 in the Gospels. So, Six through nineteen, we'll be touching rather lightly here because of time. But as for these things which you are, verse six, which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which is will not be torn down. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? So he's looking, they're thinking about the future. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must, key word to underline, must take place first but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues, the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Many of you need to highlight that, circle it, put stars on it, and then tattoo it to your belly or something. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterances and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Oh, so we're going to win, but you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by on all account of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. That's a crazy passage. Jesus begins with this description of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But he adds to that. He says that it, other things will be expanding because it's obvious that he expands into a longer time frame because now nations war and kingdoms rise and fall. So he's not talk, talking only about that one specific moment. This is a description of what people will do, though, when empowered by Satan. This is the world coming against his people. But in 1 John 5, 19, it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In John 8, 44, he, he talks again, we already read it, but where Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies and he hates all who speak truth. It's Satan who's the one stirring the people up to do these things. Satan stirs up the sin within the hearts of the people hidden things that are born out of evil and desire, the sense of self-centeredness that demands its own way first. Notice what he says. Nations will hate you. Well, that's pretty bad. Nations, not just your next-door neighbor. Nations. Who is against you? America. Uh, You live in America, I know. And it's against me. In other words, what he's saying in that is, where are you going to flee? 
See, in our thinking, we're like, okay, if in times of persecution and hardship, we can, we can always go up north. We can always go out west. We can, there's a place we can go to flee. Where are you going to flee when the whole nation's against you? What nation will welcome you when the nations are against you? And you say, but mom and dad will hide me. Are you sure parents and family are going to hate you, he says? Relatives, friends, people that you've invested your whole life in, people you bore, people you breastfed and changed their diapers and loved them and kissed them when they did their boo-boos and all of the other things, and they will turn against you because of Jesus. Am I getting through? What lie are you telling yourself that you'll make it through because you've got the plans? What plans? What plans will frustrate the will of God? What way? How much savings do you have that you think I will endure that? He says, some of you will die. But here's the crazy reality. By the way, if you learn to embrace this now, you will save yourself so much wasted time by being shocked when it happens. Again, I say this, I sit in my office, people come to me and they'll tell me about, you know, my mom and dad, they're furious with me. You know, here's an adult man or woman, and now they're just like, we don't know what's going on. Our whole, my mom and dad and my brother and sister, they just turned against me, and, and they don't know what to do, and they've made all kinds of bad decisions because they're trying to keep peace in the family, and on and on and on, and they're just looking at me like, what's going on? And I'm like, I, I say these things, and maybe I'm an unkind pastor. I, just, I don't know, but I say, why are you surprised? Don't you read your Bible? Don't you believe what it says? What's interesting, though, in verse 18, he says, you'll be hated. in 17, you'll be hated. 16, you'll be delivered up by your family. You're going to die, yet not one of you will be harmed. What? That doesn't make sense unless you understand the gospel. Unless you understand that though you die, you do not die fully. You fall asleep like Stephen did. You'll be raised from the dead and you will then be safe forevermore. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, near the back of the Bible. Eight through ten. First Peter five, eight through ten. He says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Then he throws into him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In verse 8, we have two commands. Be sober spirit and be on the alert. Sober spirit is not talking about the drunkenness or something like that. He's serious-minded. Serious-minded. You, you need to, you know, stop all the silliness and start taking things more seriously and thinking seriously. Be very sober-minded in all of your approaches toward your children, yourself, your spouse, your government, your health, everything. Be sober-minded. Why? Why are we to be sober? Why are do we be on the alert? Because you have an adversary. The question I only can ask you is, do you believe that? And it's easy to say it right now. Yeah, 
yeah, he, you're talking about it. But what are you doing tomorrow? And what are you doing next week? Do you grasp that you have one who is your eternal enemy? Consider your ways. Ask yourself, how often do you gird up your mind to be sober and cautious? To think on the things you desire or you plan to do with a sense of distrust, one in yourself but also in this age. Behold, I will go to such and such a city, conduct business and make a profit and then return. He says, all of that is boasting and evil. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. There are many a man and woman right now who are in serious trouble because they put their whole hope in their retirement funds and now they're in the negatives and they've watched a 25% of their retirement disappear from underneath them due to the economy. Consider your ways. When was the last time you asked yourself where your adversary fit into the things that are happening in your life and those around you? When was the last time you considered the spiritual warfare aspect? This prowling of the devil, it's actually in the present tense that he is always ever wandering around looking for his prey and his servants do the same thing. But do you ever consider it? The depths of hate Satan has for every Christian is beyond my ability and your ability to grasp. He was furious all the time every day, every moment of every day. Nothing stirs up that wrath and anger more than a bold Christian. So he roars and he paces and he threatens us with harm and shame. But what is his goal, beloved? Is it to do you harm? No. It is not. It is to silence you. Silence you from speaking the truth. It is silencing you from speaking the hope of the gospel, of the glory and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Where you just crawl up inside yourself and say, I'll keep the peace and I'll try not to ruffle the feathers. So what are we to do? Verse 9, resist him is what he says. How? Well, two ways. By remaining unmoved in the truth of the gospel knowing that, no, this is true. And knowing, too, that we're not alone. Knowing, too, that we're not alone. That we're suffering just with all the other brothers and sisters, so it's okay. Church history is filled with accounts of men and women, both young and old, who looked at their impending death and literally laughed. There are those during the Inquisition time where they would actually take the blade and put it to their throat. There are others who, as they stood and facing the the funeral pyre that was going to be theirs as they would be tied to the stake, helped put the wood willingly on the pile that would kill them. This is something that's madness to those of this age, for this life is all you can love. If I'm talking to you, this is you. All you have is this. And what I'm saying makes little to no sense to you because your life is not bound up in Jesus Christ. But for the Christian, the true Christian, this life is not what matters. And though Satan will stir people up to vent their hatred upon you, you will find that the Holy Spirit will be close beside you. Just like he was with Stephen and millions upon millions of others. Our Lord continues to provoke Satan as this generation and the next generation will continue to live out the gospel. And as each one of those people, including, I pray, Missio Dei Fellowship, State remains steadfast, his fury will be evident. But as many have said in the past, the blood of Christians is truly the seedbed of God's kingdom. 
But why do we stand fast? Notice verse 10. Why does a Christian stand fast? Why does he not fail when the fullness of the wrath of Satan is poured out on him? After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. The reason is because you're safe in Christ. Because God is the God of all grace. Even the grace that carries you to the end of great hardship. Grace that will actually open your mouth like Stephen to speak with boldness. Grace that emboldens you and grace that consoles you. I have just a few minutes, so go to John 17. And we'll try to draw all this together. John 17. While you turn there, uh, John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer. This is the one where Jesus, just prior to his arrest, trial, uh, crucifixion, he prays to the Father. It's rich with all sorts of theology. It's a wonderful opportunity because you get a chance to see how Jesus actually prayed to his Father. There are several points running through the prayer, and all of them are temptations for me. But I want to focus on how Jesus interceded on our behalf on the eve of his death. First of all, there is a theme regarding a Christian's relationship to this world or this age, this fallen realm, okay? In verse 6, notice, he says, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me, what? Out of the world. They're out of the world. In verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. So he's not praying for the world, this age, and the people of this age, but those whom you have given me. So there are those who are, he's not praying on behalf of the world, but he's praying for the ones who came out of the world that you gave me. Verses 14 to 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. See the distinction? They have the word and the world hates them. Why? Because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. But I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from who? The evil one, Satan. They are not the world of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we have this, gave them out of the world, not on behalf of the world, and that we are not of the worlds. That's the first observation. Second, This idea of not belonging to this world does not mean that we don't live in the world. It's just that we don't belong to this world or this age anymore. So in verse 11, the first part of 11, he's preparing to go to the Father again after his death and resurrection. His time here is done. So he says, I am no more in the world. Yet they themselves are where? In the world. He's interceding not for himself here. He's interceding for his disciples and us. He's like, I'm, I'm ready to leave. In Christ's mind, he's already gone. He's like, but we're still in the world. Not of it, but we're in it. Third, the life and the perseverance of believers is bound up in the power and the care of God. Notice verse 11 again at the very last part. Let me read the whole thing. I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He asks that God would keep them. He wants the Father to keep them. That they're not up, it's not up to them being tough and just doing it on their own, but rather he's petitioning the Father's care. Verse 12, we see that up to this point, Jesus was protecting his disciples so that none were lost, but the one who was supposed to be lost, and that's Judas. He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Isn't that cool? He's like, okay, Father, I'm leaving. I won't be here to protect them. And in his back of his mind, he's also saying, and they're idiots, and they're going to wander. 
He's like, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he's like, the only one that got lost was the one who was supposed to be lost. And then in verse 13, he says, but now I come to you. So he's like, I'm not going to be with them, and these things I speak in the world, why? So that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So Christ is leaving his disciples. He's leaving them. He's leaving us. He's leaving his word. It's designed through his word to give us joy. Why? Because we know that we're forgiven, saved, kept. He says, I've spoken these things. I taught them. I've given them my word so they can have joy. That we are to be a people of the Why do you think you fight so much? Why are some of you so far behind in your Bible reading? And you might say, well, this and that. No, you know why? Because you're in a spiritual warfare that you don't even know you're in. And the one thing that will bring you hope and stability and, and maturity is the Word of God. And it's the one thing that you always find yourself fighting. If you're like me, you'll look at your Bible and you're like in a second. Let me just do, and you'll have a thousand reasons, and you don't even recognize it's the satanic oppression and work of spiritual warfare. He gave us his word, these things he spoke, that we might have joy. And it's the one thing that we don't do so often. Verse 14. However, knowing this word, well, let me read it. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So knowing this word and believing in Jesus results in the world hating us. So we have a joy, and yet we have hatred. That hate is not because of us, though. It's because of the word that was given. Because a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, is one who is conforming himself to the word. And the moment you do that, it brings you into opposition. And then fourth, this power behind the world system is not human, but satanic. And that's why Jesus is interceding. It's not another person that we might beat that person, but how do you fight Satan? And so in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them where? From Satan. We are kept from the evil one, not because we're so good, but because God is so gracious. Doesn't mean that Satan won't seek our harm. He's still roaring around, seeking whom he can destroy and fight. It's not that he won't have some of you maybe arrested, lose your job, whatever it might be. But he cannot triumph. He cannot triumph because God is one who keeps us safe. And that safety, that protection is, what we, is, is that we do not belong to this realm that's passing away. This realm is under God's wrath. And every one of you in this room who still listen to these words and you say, I want to go my own way, you go your own way. It's your way to go. But understand it is under the sovereign hand of God who holds all under his control. And his wrath will be satisfied. All of you apart from Christ. His wrath will be satisfied in his putting you in hell. But if you're in Christ, you're kept safe, safe from Satan and his ultimate device. So instead, in verse 17, notice, we're set apart. He says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. And then he says, what is that? Your word is truth. We're set apart through the word of God, which is truth, the only truth while we live in this world that is only one of lies. Why do some of you wander so much? Why do some of you stumble so much? Why do you have so many things that you do that you wish you hadn't done? It's because you're not a man or woman of the word and the word does not conform you to it and you do not drink it in to the point that it, it's so much part of you that as it was spoken of John Bunyan, that if you were to cut him, he would bleed bibbling. He cannot help but speak, think, 
live the word. Verse 18, as you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So while we're being kept safe in this world and while we've been saved out of this world, he says, at the same time, I'm sending them into this world to continue the mission of Jesus. That is the essence of Missio Dei, the mission of God, our church's name. That is what we're trying to do. It's, it's this idea that God has sent you and I into this world that we were saved out of, that we might call others to come and follow Jesus. So while we are to be aware of Satan's efforts to harm us, we are not to be silenced by his efforts. Rather, by being men and women of the word, resting on the promises of God, proclaiming the gospel to a dying world, we are to live as aliens and strangers, faithful to the end. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to that task. Help us to see the great battle that's occurring. Help us to choke out the lies that so often entangle us. I pray for husbands and wives that they would be of one heart and one faith in this. I pray for them that they would encourage each other so that as a wife grows weak or the husband does, that the other might encourage. I pray so much for those who are single and those who are in an unequally yoked type of marriage, that you would strengthen them even to the uttermost with brothers and sisters in Christ who would remind them that they might not lose hope. That we would go forth each day to do battle, that we'd recognize the battle is on every front. There is no place where we find respite, except in that time when we can at least gather together as saints to hear your word, sing your word, partake of the Lord's Supper, and remember our great, our great Savior. So bless us now as we prepare to go home and to do the various things that we'll do. In your son's holy name, amen.